And I um, invite you to please uh, turn back with me in your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you, uh, to Luke uh, chapter 9. And uh, to, uh, to that section from verse 28, it is sort of 36 or thereabout. Um, all Scripture is uh, inspired. Uh, all Scripture is, is God-breathed. I know this. You also uh, know this. All Scripture inspired. All Scripture is God-breathed. Even with that, I have no problem in saying that what we come to uh, today, what we have before us, really is at a peak. It is a high point uh, in the Bible, isn't it? This moment where the Lord Jesus Christ is transfigured, where heaven almost seems to appear uh, before us on earth. This is a, a special moment, isn't it? This is a, a lofty moment in, in many ways. Uh, it's unique. Ryle, J.C. Ryle, that, that famous uh, Anglican bishop, he said this of the transfiguration, that what we have here is the most remarkable event in the history of Jesus' ministry, the most remarkable event, and who am I to argue with J.C. Ryle? This is special. This is unique. But I do wonder, have we ever paused to ponder the purpose of the transfiguration? Have we done that? Have you done that? Have we ever taken time to think through not just what it was that happened here, but more the question, why? Now, if we have done that, I think we'll have been taken aback by the answer, because consider this, if you will, that God ordained this marvelous event largely for the assurance of his church. Isn't that an amazing thought? That this glorious spectacle that in a sense we witness in Luke chapter 9. It happened, why? Because God sought to encourage those who are seeking after the Lord Jesus Christ for the assurance of his people. And so if today you've come into St. Peter's and you're a Christian, but you have the beginnings of misgivings about the Christian faith. Now, you're a Christian, but maybe you're beginning to, to doubt, and doubt because of your sin, your own salvation. And can you see hope here? If this is for the assurance of the, of the church, it may be this morning in his word that God will, just now, meet you and meet you in your doubts. And I, I'm, I'm going to request this. I, I think we need to be very quiet this morning. And I'll tell you why. We need to be quiet in St. Peter's. Because if we're quiet, I think we will hear certain things in this text. So, if we're quiet, what will we hear? One, we will hear of a change. Two, if we're really quiet, we'll hear a conversation. Three, we will hear a correction or a rebuke. And then the fourth thing, if we're really quiet, what do we hear most obviously at the end? We hear a command. So
So we'll hear of a change, we'll hear a conversation here, a correction, and then a command. But before we look at this text, let's ensure our God hears us, all of us, in prayer as we ask for help. Join me. Let's pray. Lord God, all scripture is indeed uh, inspired, is of you, breathed out by you. Uh, Lord God, we come to this special moment in Jesus' ministry, and uh, we ask that you would help us to understand uh, the complexities here. We ask for more. We ask that you would build us up as we study this by your Holy Spirit evermore into the likeness of Jesus Christ and for your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you have scripture there uh, before you. First thing that we require, we hear, is we hear of a change. Okay, now, straight off the bat, I guess you and I might be wondering about the company that Jesus keeps here in Luke chapter 9 as he travels up this hill, up this mountainside. Do you notice that here we don't find Jesus with the 12, nor with the crowd, At this point, we find him just with Peter, who is it? Peter, James, and John? I I don't actually think that should uh, delay us for for very long. This just seems to be Jesus' practice at uh, certain critical moments in his earthly ministry. You can recognize that, can't you? Um, As it was in the raising of Jairus' daughter, and as it will be at points even in Gethsemane. So what's happening here? Jesus is seeking that sort of intimate companionship of an inner circle of disciples. So so that shouldn't delay us too much, should it? And and neither should Jesus practice, uh, because by this stage in Luke's gospel, you and I are pretty accustomed to what Jesus does. Sometimes he removes himself. He travels up a mountainside for what purpose? He goes up there. By now we know, don't we? He'll do that to pray. So Christian friend, if these things don't delay us, deter us, that means that just now you and I can turn to the main event here because is it not absolutely astounding? I'm going to ask you to look at verse 29 Uh, with me. Verse 29. What's the main event? Look at this. And as our Lord was praying, what happens? The appearance of his face is altered. His clothing becomes dazzling white. It's interesting, isn't it? How little there is by way of description Isn't it very understated? His face was altered. But I think if we throw in here what we learn in Matthew's gospel, that his face began to shine like the sun. And then if we throw in the details that were given about his garments, that his clothing too became dazzling elsewhere, like light, Lightning. When we throw in these things, I think we get a picture, we get, get an idea, don't we, that here in this moment before Peter and James and John, what happens? But Jesus begins to shine. Splendor begins. Our Lord begins to, to glow 
brightly, dazzling. Our Lord here begins to radiate in glory. Now, come on. Are we not on holy ground? And I think we can all appreciate that what we're dealing with just now is, is, is heavenly in a sense, isn't it? It is, is divine. But if we're going to see exactly what's going on here, I need you to recognize this this morning. That in this transfiguration event, what's happening is that God is showing us to a couple of different places. Can I say that again? In this event, we are being shown to a couple of different places. To where? First, we're being shown here, we're being shown behind the scenes, aren't we? See, I think all all of us know this, that sometimes famous people in society, they, they, they try to travel around with their identities concealed. You can, you can think about that if you think about celebrities and some of the daft things that celebrities do, but you can maybe picture some of your favorite celebrities and you can see them with their, their collar up and the sunglasses on, their head down, maybe with a baseball cap pulled over their face and they're, they're trying to evade the, the paparazzi's lens or if there, is it Shia LaBeouf with, what did he do? He put a paper bag on his head, I think, at some stage. Now that's ludicrous. But consider that in much of his ministry, the Lord Jesus, that he too was incognito. Now you can see that, can't you? You think about these chapters we've looked at in much of his time as he travels and ministers in, in Galilee. What's the reality? But his majesty was veiled. And so now you can see what's happening here, can't you? In this event, that, that, that just the tiniest little slither of the veil is being pulled back and we're being shown, in a sense, we're being shown the unseeable things. In this event, we're given this little glimpse of the status and the majesty of the one who is the Son of God. Indeed, think of it in terms of, of John chapter 17. What are we getting a glimpse of here if it is not the glory that Jesus shared with the Father before the foundation of the world? We're we're being shown here behind the scenes, and it is beautiful. But the second place we're shown, and it will sound daft, we're being shown the future. Here in this transfiguration, we're being shown Jesus' future. Does that sound crazy to you? Does it sound a little bit odd we're being shown Jesus' future? If so, I'd ask you just to think about the placement of the transfiguration event. When does this occur? Can we look at verse 28? Would you look at this? What's the placement? When does it occur? What's it tied to? Look at this in verse 28. So we're told this took place. So Luke links it to something. This took place about eight days after certain, what is it? After sayings. What were the sayings? Do you remember? So yet the disciples have been told about cross-bearing, self-denial. I think we remember that. What else was it though? They'd also heard that earth-shattering news that the Christ of God would suffer. They've just heard that the long-promised Christ is going to suffer and die. They've heard that saying, 
And then what happens? Next event, the transfiguration. Do you see what's happening here? Listen to me. Here, God is pointing the disciples to what Jesus would become. In the transfiguration, God is saying to to these disciples, he's saying, yes, the Christ will suffer. There will be rejection. There will even be death. But there will also be triumph. There will also be a resurrection. Here for their assurance, God allows his church a glimpse of Jesus coming glorified body. That's what we've got in front of us. God allowing a little glimpse into what Jesus' humanness would become when he is, by his Father, raised to life, raised from the dead. Isn't that amazing? And isn't it amazing? Isn't it especially amazing when you recall the fact that this is what you are going to see? Isn't that astounding, Christian friend? that you or I too will one day see the shining splendor in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will see this when he returns. So we hear of a change. Second thing we hear is a conversation. We hear a conversation. Now, I'm sure you're going to be with me on this. If I was to say that if this is all we had today, Jesus' face was altered and his clothes became dazzling. If that's all we had in this portion of Scripture, that would keep us busy for eternity, wondering at the detail of that, that his face was altered and he's transfigured. So I think it's incredible that God gives us even more wonderful things for us to get our teeth into here. And you'll see them. If you look at verse 30 and 31, you'll you'll notice the additional wonderful detail and the fact that Jesus at this point is joined by a couple of friends. Isn't he? At this point, we find a couple of characters from of old joining. Now, I, I say this and I mean it. If we had a little bit longer, wouldn't it be marvelous to think about what we learn about death here? So we look at these figures that join Jesus. Wouldn't it be great to be able to linger longer on what we learn about those who die in Christ? Are you not given encouragement as you look at these figures? It's these characters. Are you not given encouragement for the face and death? As you see these two saints who are long dead, and yet they're alive more. They're enjoying oh, contented, loving, intimate conversation with Jesus. Doesn't that encourage us for death? But we can't linger on that. And I want to tell you the reason why not. Because there, there's obviously, as we look at these characters, there's a couple of critical, crucial questions that we're all asking at this point, I think, or we should be asking. A couple of questions about these characters. First question is really obvious. You're asking this, I'm asking this. Why is it Moses and Elijah? Are you not asking that question? Should we not be asking that question? Why, why is it not Abraham appears with Isaiah? Why Rebecca or Rachel appears with Jeremiah? Why is it? I mean, it's not going to be random, is it? Why is it, why, why is it, uh, why is it Moses? Why is it Elijah? 
And I think part of the answer might be because of, if you think back to the Old Testament, part of the answer might be because of the parallel, if lesser experiences that both of those figures had. Can, can you see the parallels? Like with Elijah, 1 Kings 19, he's up there and he's hearing from God. What about Moses at Sinai? Do you recognize all the parallels up the mountainside and hearing from God in the cloud and then his face, Moses' face, shining with the glory of Almighty God? I mean, that's part of the answer. But more, I think it's these two men because of their status, what do I mean by that? Do, do you, you see, I'm, I'm sure that the word of God in the Old Testament, for the Jew, the word of God in the Old Testament, it almost neatly it, it formed into two divisions. There was two divisions in the, the Jewish mind. Wasn't there what was there, the Old Testament? There was the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. And so you can see what's happening here. Here, the two great representatives of those two divisions. Here is Moses, the bearer of the law. Here is Elijah, the figurehead of the prophets. And what are they doing on that mountain? They are acknowledging Jesus of Nazareth as the one that those two great divisions pointed to and anticipated. That's why it's Moses. That's why it's Elijah. The second question we ask is, well, wait a minute. They're in conversation with Jesus. What are they talking about? Well, I, I said at the start of the sermon, if we're really quiet today, and we're, we're doing that, we're being quiet. Well, if we're really quiet just now, maybe we can overhear this intimate conversation. Because just look, it's on the screen, is it? Verse 31. What did they speak about? Did you see there? They spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's an awfully strange word. Would you agree? I was writing the sermon and I was freezing. And I was freezing outside and I was cold in my study, sitting in a big jacket and I was reading about departures and I was thinking about Ryanair. I'm not going to lie to you. I was thinking about EasyJet and jetting off to some warmer climb as I read about departures. I think it's important for us to understand that the word behind this term is the Greek word meaning really exodus. Exit. What's in view here? Yeah, maybe the resurrection. But what primarily were they talking about? They were talking about the cross. They, they're there, they're gathered on that mountain, and they're talking about Jesus' death. And will you allow me just to speculate for a moment what that might have sounded like? I mean, what are they doing, Moses and Elijah? Maybe they're relaying to Jesus how news of the Messiah's impending death is, is, is going down back home in heaven. You know, talking about the, the angels looking on, bewildered bewildered by the idea that the Christ of God might, might die. Maybe that filtered into the conversation. I reckon more likely the tone was gratitude. Don't you think that? You know, Moses and, and Elijah just overflowing in their thanks to Jesus that he is soon going to go to that cross. And what is he going to do? But he is going to atone for 
their sin. Whatever, whatever it was, what I must do is return to you, the Christian in here who is doubting, and the Christian in here today who is, who is perhaps especially because of your sin, doubting that you really can have been forgiven by God. And if that's you, and if and you're really struggling with that this morning, I'd ask you just to think about this detail, that they could have, they could have conversed about anything. Don't you see that? I mean, this is a unique moment. Like, when do we ever read of stuff like this happening? I mean, heaven is meeting earth here, long dead saints speaking with the Son of God. They have this opportunity to speak to Jesus. They could have spoken about anything, about the creation, about Jesus' upbringing, about what it will be like at the Perusia when he... They could have spoken about anything. And what do they speak about? They speak about that cross, that old rugged cross. Do you see? Yes, your sin is great, but that moment at Calvary, it was greater still. Do you see that? Do you understand what happened there? Your sin is great, but the Son of God has faced the punishment for it. Your sin is great. But Jesus has already dealt with the wrath at your sin. Do, do you see? Your sin is great. But what happened at Golgotha was the fact that Jesus led an exodus. Your sin is great. But you, Christian friends, you have been freed from slavery. You have been set free from the captivity of your sin. He led an exodus at Calvary. You've been led into a promised land. And we should rejoice as a church because it is a promised land of forgiveness. Third, we hear a correction or a rebuke, a correction. So we, we have been, you and I, we've been looking at, at Moses and Elijah and, and this conversation, quite intimate conversation they're having with Jesus. If just now, if you would do this and if you would turn away from Moses and Elijah and if you would look to Peter <laughs> and James and John, I think you will be surprised at what you see. What would you expect to see? I'm ex given the amazing event unfolding before their eyes, I'm expecting to see them with their jaw to the floor, wide-eyed, amazed. What do you see instead? They're yawning. They're rubbing their eyes. Yes, they will be amazed, but not until they've woken from yet another <laughs> inopportune sleep. Now, it's at this moment that Peter blurts out his famous phrase, and I, I think we should look at it together. Look at verse 33. What does Peter, of course it's Peter, isn't it? What does he say? Would you read it with me? The master, he says, it's, it's good that we're here. What's the next? But let's make some tents. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for, for Elijah. Can I ask you, St. Peter, what, what do you think of that as a, an expression? It's, it's rather odd, is it? I think it's rather strange, but I think we can make sense of it. Personally, and you're, of course, you're a, you're a 
free to disagree with me on this. Personally, I don't think that this is gibberish. Okay, so some people you know, down the centuries, they thought he says the first thing that comes into his mind and it's just utter nonsense. Eh, tense. Let's go for that. Like, like, three ten. I don't think that's it. I think what Peter has in view here is what was called the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. What was that? Big festival, major festival in the Jewish calendar where they did what? Where they made tents. Where they you know, built erect booths and they camped out in these. It was a festival also that had something of a future look, a theme, a heavenly look, a heavenly theme. So can you, can you recognize what's occurring at this moment? Peter wakes up. <laughs> he sees what he sees. He hears what he hears. It's a heavenly scene. And his mind goes to that festival. And he says, let's make tents. Actually, what I would love you to, to focus on with me just now, and it's so ever so important, is Peter's intention with the tents. Now, have a look at the start of this verse to recognize what I'm talking about here. When does he want to build tents? Do you see? As these men are departing, as they're leaving, what does he want to do? Can you see? They're, they're, they're about to go, Moses and Elijah. And he says, no, go. Let's make tents. He's wanting to keep this going. Now listen to the intention. Here, Peter is seeking to prolong the transfiguration event, isn't he? Just as they depart, he wants to make booze. And he wants to prolong this. And crucially, it's that intention that draws the rebuke from the Scriptures. Do you notice that? So he, he, they're about to depart. He says, no, 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 don't, don't, no, please. Like, I'll make 10. He says this, and then we're not knowing. Not knowing what he said. Now, I'll, I'll repeat to you what I said a moment ago. This is quite odd, isn't it? It's quite strange with, with the, the tense. I want to add to that and say that it might be odd. It might seem odd. But there's a vital lesson for us here. And it's a lesson about the Christian life. And I was thinking about this earlier and during the week. Uh, that as I'm preaching just now, the, the chances are that the congregation of St. Peter's largely is made up of professing Christians. More than that, we're made up of Christians who have been Christians for a good number of years. So that, that's true, isn't it? So I know there's, there's some who have come to faith recently. There's younger people who have been converted recently as well. But in the main, we are Christians who have been Christians for a number of years. Now, because of that, I know that the vast majority of us in here, what we can do, oh, and don't we love to do it, we can look back on great spiritual highs that we have enjoyed in our lives. Can't we do that? Uh, you know, I would ask you to do that. Like, draw it to mind. Lovely spiritual experiences you've had. Can you think about them with me? What is it for you? I'd love to, love to know. Maybe you're thinking about times in your youth, are you? When you knew just lovely Christian fellowship. Oh, praise God for that. Maybe it's, maybe it's a preacher from years ago from whom you learned so much about Jesus 
Maybe it's a Christian camp. I know that for some of you, it was a Christian camp years ago where you just knew there's just, ah, the closeness, the experience of God in that place. Now, hear me when I say those things are beautiful, aren't they? Aren't they lovely? But the author, Dale Ralph Davis, makes a, a very interesting point. He says that what we can do, like Peter in Luke chapter 9, that we can make idols of our mountaintop experiences. We can make idols of these things. Isn't that helpful? Isn't that interesting for us in the Christian life that what we can do, we can either just so yearn for those past experiences that what can happen is that we can begin to despise the apparent ordinariness of our present Christian experience. You recognize that we can look back, oh, we're so yearning for that past high that we begin to despise even just the ordinary means of grace. We can do that. What else can we do? We can chase the high, can't we? We can forsake the ordinary Christian life. We can church hop, conference hop, whatever it might be, searching for that buzz, that high that we once knew, can't we? Well, maybe what we should do is look at these past experiences through the lens of the transfiguration. Because why does God give this to Peter, James, and John? Why does he do this? He gives it to them to fuel them for the tough times ahead. This isn't an ongoing, prolonged experience. God gives them this mountaintop experience for the challenges that lie ahead. And that surely is the case with some of the things that we have brought to mind for ourselves. Friends, we should thank God for his goodness in the past, but as Christians, we should not live there. We should be fixed on living for God's glory in the moment, in the now. And then we close with the last thing that we hear We've heard of a change, a conversation, a correction, but you all noticed it in the reading, didn't you? We also hear a command. And of all the things that we've heard, of all the voices that we've listened to this morning in this text, this is surely the most notable. So what have we got here? Well, at this moment, as it closes, what we see just before Moses and Elijah depart, don't we read of a cloud? descending. A cloud. What's a cloud? We know it, don't we? We know that from Genesis to Revelation throughout God's Word, this is something that symbolized the, the very the presence of the Almighty, the Creator Himself. Now, this cloud, do you notice it descends? Then what happens? It envelops the group, doesn't it? And then be quiet. Because then from this cloud, we hear a voice. And it's a voice that says, this is my son, my chosen one. We all recognize that what's in focus is Jesus' role. So it's not just Psalm 2, is it? It's not just this is my son. It's not just Jesus' identity. But do you notice the focus is the task that he's taken up? This is my chosen one. This is, the, this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. So we all see that. But is it not interesting to you to note 
to whom the voice speaks. Because it's not all that long ago that we were in Jesus' baptism, was it? That was Luke chapter 3. So actually it was quite a long time ago, wasn't it really? Let's be honest about it. Luke chapter 3, that was a few months ago. But do you remember that in Jesus' baptism, a, a voice was heard? What did the voice say? Can I read it? You are my beloved son. Speaking to whom? Speaking, speaking to Jesus. Now, do, do you notice how it is different here? So that was you are. Now we're in Luke chapter 9, and it's third person, isn't it? It's not you, you but this is my son. Isn't it fascinating? Do you see what happens here? The Father speaks, but for the assurance of the church, he speaks for the encouragement of the disciples. I mean, you think about it. A few days previously, what has Peter done? But he's made confession. And he said of Jesus of Nazareth, you are the Christ of God. A few days later, what happens? The Father speaks to say, you have got it right. Don't you see? The Father speaks to say, that is correct. So how do we entitle this, the last heading? What are we listening for? A command? I guess we should make sure that we get it right. If we look at verse 35, we've got it there. What's the command? The Father speaks. This is my son, my chosen one. Can everyone see the last three words? What's the command? Listen. Listen to him. I wonder if that's familiar to you. That's God the Father quoting himself. This is language taken from Deuteronomy chapter 18, where we hear of a great prophet promised, one who must be heeded and listened to. So do you see what's being said? Not only is it confirmed that Jesus is that great figure. What's the command? The disciples must soak up everything that Jesus says. In the coming days, they're going to hear so much about his life and his death and his resurrection, about living for him. The instruction from on high, the instruction from the clouds, listen, drink it all in, God says. As we end, as we close, the obvious thing to say is, do you know, Christian friends, that command still stands. You know, in, in your Bible, we are to listen to, to, to Jesus Listen to everything that he's saying. But this is where I want to go. This is how I want to land. I want to close. I want to ask you, what's Jesus saying to you this morning? He's speaking. Speaks through the preaching. What is Jesus saying? Are you hearing him this morning? First, if you're not a Christian, could it be this morning that Jesus is speaking and calling you to believe in him? To those who are not Christians, I ask that. To those online who are watching, I ask could that be what's happening? Through his spirit, through the preaching of the word, today, could Jesus be calling to you and saying, make today the day that you believe. Make today the day that you, you understand the gravity of your sin, your predicament before God. Make today the day that you finally see the glory of Jesus, his identity as the only savior and believe. Is Jesus saying that to you? If so, obey. 
But then if you are a Christian, I wonder, are you hearing what Jesus is saying to you? Listen for a moment. I think in nearly every detail of the text that you and I have looked at, nearly every single detail, Jesus is saying the same thing to you. If you have repented and if you have believed in him time and time again in this portion of scripture, Jesus assures you of your salvation. He assures you your faith is is not misplaced. He assures you it is real and it is true that you are forgiven. He is the majestic son of God. And such has been his atoning work. One day, not only in death, are you going to enjoy intimate conversation with Jesus? It's more than that. Listen, one day, such has been his work. One day, you too shall shine. It's not a thought. Such has been the work of the cross and that empty tomb. One day you're going to be raised to a new and glorified body. And that's one that is going to radiate evermore. Why? That it's going to shine to the eternal glory of the Lord our God. Friends, let's bow and let's pray to him.